Welcome to The Airwave, West Yorkshire Internal Medicine Teaching Collaborative Podcasts, in association with Airedale General Hospital and Bradford Royal Infirmary, a Chief Registrar Programme Initiative. Today's podcast is led by Dr. Miriam Jasson Walker and is a two part podcast discussing the IMT curriculum, the ARCP process, and how to nail your portfolio. So moving on to our next section, MRCP, that old chestnut. We talked about paces yesterday. Yeah. We have to talk yeah. about it again. We'll just cover it very briefly. So the only thing that they specify on the decision aid is that they would like you to have passed part one by the end of year one and they want you to have the full MRCP diploma by the end of year two. Now, Mark, I believe that that is actually not strictly true based on what well, you... Well, yeah, so I, I can tell you that in reality there are ST4s walking around who do not have paces, so have not completed the full membership of Royal College of Physicians. In reality... That was probably somewhat COVID related. Mm. Now, the challenge is as an IMT one is getting part one done. And that's the first real hurdle that you have to get. Some people will be lucky and come into MRC, come into IMT with MRCP part one completed, but many won't. So the first step is getting part one sorted. That's the thing you've got to be focusing on. Part two follows part one quite easily. Paces has been a different beast. So actually, as soon as you've got through part one, if you've got part one done as an IMT one, you should be fine to have your paces done by the end of IMT two, provided you don't have too much of a difficult time in either examination. You are able to leave IMT three with a deferred outcome that does not have MRCP within it. And you can still act as a medical registrar without the MRCP. That's been one of the controversial changes because you can be deemed to be of a suitable level as a medical registrar without having the full membership of all college of physicians. So there are IMT frees within the region and broadly within the UK who are not with the MRCP paces, but are with the medical registrar bleep. So it does happen. In reality, hopefully that doesn't happen very often, but there are more and more people now leaving IMT free about paces mainly think, due to COVID, but it is happening. Yeah. I think there's one other thing that I noticed the way that MRCP, the written exams work, is that you need to apply for them within a specific window. Yeah. And often, particularly if you're having to resit exams, those windows fall before you get your results of a previous exam. So I've recently learned from a colleague that actually you can keep applying even if you don't yeah. have a result. Um, yeah. and they will just refund you that money. Yes. Um, so you don't end up having to miss a sitting just purely because you didn't know the result. Do not wait for your results. Just book the test because if you then fail it, you are by virtue cannot sit the next test anyway and you should just be refunded. So if you are due to sit your part one, because I know there are a few people who are around who are due to sit it, do me. not wait. Do not wait, Miriam, to book part two because there's normally there's a part two date in June normally. Yeah, that's quite a good, yeah, yeah, that's quite a good opportunity. And in reality, if you've done revision for part one, part two is not a massive step up from part one. So you might as well book it. But yeah. definitely book the reset. Yeah, no, I'm going to. Yeah. Well, as long as there's no other issues, like for any reason that you wouldn't want to do it, you know, like if you had big life changing events, you know, yeah. if you are, if you're, if you fail and you know you would like to do the next one, then apply. I did that for my part two because I knew that. I'd revised 
as much as you know as much as I was going to do but I knew that the results were not out before the the application window closed exactly like you said and so I paid the money for the exam and then it got immediate well I didn't get immediately refunded but it was like you know within three to four working days it came through so it was yeah fine but definitely worth doing than sort of having to waste that time of sort of training because I guess ultimately if you are aiming to get the full MRCP by the end of year two you do need the time because the exams you know so yeah that is definitely something to be aware of quite quick really as well actually if you think about it if you're not sitting part one till january time yeah if you then you don't don't have a vast amount of time because if you think about it i think they say that especially if you're going into a group two specialty they'll want you to have all of it done by like march time yeah. So that you can apply for jobs without them thinking, how are you going to defer your, if you've got a job going into starting August, it kind of gets complicated. So actually your window is quite narrower than you even think it is. Yeah. But at the same time, I'll mention there are, that I, I know there are trainees who did ST3, i.e. were group two specialties who progressed into those specialties about having the full MRC. Yeah. So again, it is possible. Don't get too worried about it. I don't want people to stress too much about doing it in a really fast manner, but I did it in a year before in a calendar year. I did the whole thing. And in reality, it was not a particularly pleasant year, but it wasn't a pleasant year because we also had lots of COVID and I was on ICU and it was unpleasant for many reasons, not just my MRCP. I think there are also some specialties. I'm aware that cardiology, they very specifically mention that they want you to have the full MRCP before you start ST4. So I guess you do have the third year to get it, IMT3 to get it. There are some that you you do definitely need. Okay, so also ALS, more qualifications. I found this a little bit confusing because I assumed that in order to, to work as an IMT doctor, you did need a valid ALS certificate. However, this doesn't actually affect your ARCP. It does say here an expired ALS certificate should not affect a trainee, which I found very surprising. But there you go. Well, I say now as an ALS instructor that I didn't have my ALS when I passed when I passed my final ARCP. So I might have just expired. I just completely forgot about it. And I, I'd just been uploading it and just wasn't aware it was four years. I just kept uploading it and uploading it. So I, you know, I fell foul of this. It was not a significant problem, but they wanted me to correct it yeah. and show that I was going to correct it. But in reality, I was leading cardiac arrest, so I didn't really think it was a massive problem anyway. And how useful ALS is if you've sat it once four years later and you're doing it regularly, you're probably still doing the same practice. You don't learn massive amounts of ALS if you've already done it before. It's more just of a recap. It does not affect your progression. It's a useful thing to have, and you have to show that you're willing to go and get it. But in reality, most most of the trainees in the region should not have a problem with having a suitable ALS provider status. Yeah. Moving on to quality improvement projects. This states that you, you need engagement with, Q, uh, with QI by the end of IMT3 in order to progress. And now it specifically says that no QI requirements are specifically needed for IMT1 and 2, but you then do need some form of engagement by, by year three. However, I, I'm not sure I think I'd want to leave it that late, I have to say. I think that in terms of QI from a personal point, whenever you find a good good opportunity or an idea that you want to go ahead with, just crack on because either way that 
you're going to need it at some stage. And even if it's not for specifically the portfolio, it's definitely going to be beneficial. It's needed across all of sort of NHS specialties. What well, it's something I talked about when we when we had our introductory meeting as as chief registrar. We I spoke to all the IMTs about what was required for that year. We don't have a college tutor, so it was kind of my job because no one else was willing to do it. I mentioned back then if you there's no point waiting. If you find something to fix, go fix it. And in reality, you'll benefit the most by fixing it. If you find something that's slowing your own workflow down, that's frustrating you or annoying you, go and fix it. Because the NHS has become a little bit slow in actually fixing problems. So if there's a form that you think could be improved, if there's some aspect of handover that doesn't work, go fix it and get the data for it. Getting data retrospectively is not a particularly challenging thing to do. Surveying people doesn't take all that long. If you have a QR logo and you get people to put it out on their phones, you can get good amounts of data within half an hour. So there's no reason why you should wait. Showing leadership as an IMT3 is not something that is really assessed because it's very hard to show. What you need to show is that you can lead a project. And in reality, you'd be doing that through step uh, through IMT1 and IMT2 in any case. So just crack on, as Miriam quite rightly says. Why wait? There's no reason to sit. And if you are in a lucky position then where you go back to your hospital as an IMT3, it's a fantastic opportunity to recycle the quality improvement project. And then you get to go to Liverpool like me and show your fantastic project because you've gone back a year later and shown that the changes you've made have sustained, which is a, one of the biggest outcomes you can have in a quality improvement project. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Chloe, um, how have you found involvement with QI? Yeah, I think I got I got quite lucky. I think I had some good regs that were helpful, um, but I just kind of cracked on and got, got on with it. And I've done... I managed to do most of it, including all this QIPAT assessment thing that is needed, you know, the official form that has to be signed. Luckily for me, because I kind of almost led it with my red, so I got quite lucky about that. But I would say there is that weird bit that's highlighted in yellow that says something. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I don't quite yeah. know. From what that means in relation to... I wouldn't put too much credence on that, so I don't think I really had anything. It just says no, at least one QI project during IMT1, stage one, to be completed no later than IMT2, which is essentially what it already said. Yeah. Um, I so I don't know why they've added that in. Yeah. yeah. Strange. Um, but try not to make it overly complicated, I think, is probably... Unless there's something that you're very interested in and that you have time to dedicate it to, I would try and keep it as simple as possible because you do have lots of other things to get on with and be doing as well. So, you know, and I, I'm not an advocate for people staying out of their paid hours to achieve portfolio goals because, you know. I think, I think at the same time, please don't do a VTE or oxygen prescribing audit or do a um, or do a, post, a project where it's putting a poster on a wall. Please try and be slightly more original than that. Because I, when I was doing my quality improvement project and I was presenting it, someone presented an oxygen prescribing audit where all they did was put posters on walls and then they saw that in their ward, their prescribing oxygen magically increased. And it was almost like the person was aware they were doing the project and therefore started prescribing more oxygen. And it's, you know, try and think a little bit more outside the box than just doing one thing. Maybe um, you so could do a QI project on assessing the 
effectiveness of those posters. So it, there, 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 there is. Of there all is. posters on wards. Exactly. But there is a quality <laughs> improvement project waiting to be done, which is the quality of a quality improvement project yeah. that are required. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, if you walk around the hospital, the amount of random things people have stuck to walls that may not even be true anymore, yeah. that people still have on the walls is quite frankly laughable. So if you are going to do a quality improvement project, make it interesting because you may also be able to publish off the back of it. There are lots of opportunities. Quality improvement is a a great little opportunity to show that something small works. You're not going to get, you know, you're not going to make big changes to medication. You're not going to have a proper research portfolio from it. But if you can do something interesting and small that shows a big difference in something, uh, one of the particular ones at the moment is if there's something you can do with an infection prevention infection prevention are taking almost any quality improvement project these days that shows benefit in publishing it because there's a, a lack of understanding on how to progress certain issues so it's an opportunity to get published as much as anything if you can make it relevant and interesting there's a great opportunity there as well but no do it early as Miriam says do your quality improvement project early make it good get out of the way don't worry about it and then maybe recycle it as an IMT free if you go back to that hospital as an IMT3. Brilliant. Yeah. Right. So let's move on to our clinical activity and acute unselected take. I actually think that this is one of the easier things to hit in the portfolio. So for each year, it says that you want involvement of at least 100 patients presenting with um, acute medical problems and a total of 500 um, by the end of INT3. I mean, if you just tot up the number of long days and night shifts on AAU and on calls that you get, you'll easily meet those. So personally, I don't think that that's going to particularly be a problem in my hospital where I am. What about you, Chloe? Yeah, I think I agree. I think all your on-calls, um, if, for me personally, I don't even know how much you need to keep a log of this. So I was quite strict with myself, whether I don't know if this is right, is in I had a like a spreadsheet type thing where I wrote down the number of case patients I'd seen and roughly what was kind of the presenting complaint for those patients over that night or that shift. But I don't think you need to do that. I think people just roughly put a number in at the end and were like, I saw roughly eight eight patients and I did X number of on-calls, therefore I have seen this many patients. But I kind of panicked about the evidence base behind that because, like, you know, that's just my word and... I don't know, but so I think that was a personal fear. I think um, if I make a just a very quick back of the napkin calculation in reality, let's say, let's you know put a reasonable road to it. Let's say you see six patients a day when you're on AAU who are acute or sick. You have three, you do three days in a row, and let's say you do that pattern that maybe twice a month. Yeah. So you're already seeing you're seeing 36 patients per month. Your times are over your 12. You're at 400 patients. So in reality, 100 is not a hard target. And if there is 100 minimum per year, 500 overall. I'm pretty sure, because I was a bit like Chloe, I counted it properly at the start. I stopped after about four months because I think I was already up to about 250 patients. Yeah. And in reality, this is not. And also, this is proved by putting in your work schedule more than anything else. You basically put your work schedule into an Excel spreadsheet and it chucks out a number for you. So in reality, this is not something I, I think needs much worry the busyness these days of our junior doctors, that's not something you're going to have to worry about. Yeah, and I think the only other thing I'm slightly worried about, which I don't think is also an issue, is that it specifically says unselected take. And for me, one of my jobs was like renal 
and all of my because I was in the tertiary centre, so all of my uncles were specifically renal, and therefore I was a bit like, can I count any of the patients that I see as unselected take? But in in the end, I did, and no one said anything because obviously I was like, we can't just discount four months of my training just because it's best because you've decided. And there's a big variation in in what trainees get to do. So during my IMT two, I you know really didn't do an awful lot of general medicine. Because I was doing ICU, I was doing I was doing dermatology. You know, those that's not a you know unselected take. But in reality, the stuff that was coming to ICU was not selected, so to speak. So I used those patients and said, look, we you know this patient's really sick. They're coming to me. They're being admitted under medicine to yeah. this particular location. So I wouldn't worry too much. This is not something I tend to say people need to worry about. Yeah. Just just do your job and you'll do this automatically. Yeah, and. So continue from that. So in terms of clinical activity, they mention um, continuing ward care of patients admitted with acute medical problems. Trainees should be involved in the day to day management of acutely unwell medical patients of at least 24 months of IM stage one. And so by that- should just get through IMT. That's essentially what yeah, just turn up. to do. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow find your way through IMT and you'll be that's, all right. That's the write the list and then you get to tick it as soon as you've Absolutely. Um, written the list. Yeah. <laughs> you've sacrificed yourself for two years. Here's a tick. Yeah, you struggle to work there, right? I want to know what hospital you're in, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Quickly mention how all, I'm sure everybody will know this already, that all IMT programmes should have a built-in elderly medicine block and critical care block, as that is part of your requirements for ARCP overall. So I don't really think we need to speak about that anymore. No, just, just you know, the thing to mention is that this is, this is something that's been talked about a lot as the gradual push of the curriculum towards involving more geriatrics because we are seeing older and older patients. If you are interested in doing a tier one specialty, which is the cardiology, respiratory, your intensive care block is incredibly useful as a general medical registrar to understand a lot of the key components and the reasons why we send people to intensive care. So that's a really good opportunity to get to grips with certain skills. So people who are interested in cardiology, it's a great opportunity to do some echocardiography because there's lots of patients who are suitable for that. If you're like me and you're very interested in point-of-care ultrasound, it's a great opportunity. If you like procedures, I did lots of art lines, I did lots of central lines. That's a really good rotation. So actually, elderly care, I'm not a geriatrician, never pretended to be, not so much my thing, but I feel I understand a lot about it these days. And in reality, the intensive care block is incredibly useful. So I think that's been one of the really welcome additions. And if you want to do intensive care off the back of... IMT through respiratory medicine, through renal medicine, or through acute internal medicine, you've now got the opportunity to do that. And that's actually a really good thing, I think. But it should yeah. happen by virtue of just having a rotation. So it shouldn't be a Definitely problem. a rotation I'm very much looking forward to. Um, yes. yeah. Leads were incredibly good for their intensive care rotation. I did, I, I lose track now how many scans I did, but I must have done probably over 100 scans on people. Really useful opportunity, if that's what you're interested in. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. so moving on to our simulation um, requirements. So in each stage, it says that it wants at least a minimum of one day of simulation for IMT1. Evidence of simulation, including human factors training for IMT2 and likewise for um, IMT3, they, they specifically mention human factors. Personally, my deanery has put on a simulation course that you can attend that's free of charge you just need to book study leave for personally i don't i don't think that 
that will be an issue for most IMT1s. It does also include procedural skills as well as part of IMT1. If you're attending a procedural skill session or um, in Yorkshire and Humber, something like the Ask Me course, you'll be ticking that box. What do you think, Chloe? Is that your experience as well? Yeah, so I did, yeah, I did the ASME course and I did all of the procedural sims really. So yeah, simulation was fine. Just going into it now, I don't quite know what sim I am maybe going to do now. As in, I might have to find something, you know, if it says specifically you need something every year, what I would maybe do with my year two and year three. So what I would, what I would add to that is that the deanery run a couple of dedicated courses at IMT3. Now, I've got a feeling one of them might be called Impress, I think, I run by Dr. Story out of Leeds, but there's also another course that runs out of Hull, I believe. And then there is a course which is a specific skills course, which they also run for refreshers of the registrar skill set. So that's mm-hmm. it, it involves central lines, entrosis access, lumbar puncture, it's actually a very useful course as a medical registrar to rehash all your skills that in reality may not be practical that much. So there are more opportunities mm-hmm. offered to you as an IMT3 within our deanery. Outside of that, I know other deaneries do something very similar where there's normally a hospital takes out on a degree of responsibility to offer some degree of skills refresher. Yeah, so I think like for me, it's just questioning whether, like, because I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm not, practicing my skills you know like every now like especially being on ICU currently and then being an acute med I've done I've been doing the things that I did as a sim in year Mm. one and I feel like the progression has now moved away from that so then I don't quite know what simulation other than me just going to a refresher when I'm actually still doing them I don't quite know what I will do there I think that points to one of the issues that in reality you max out at internal medicine when you get to the end of IMT1. Oh, sorry, mm-hmm. to IMT1, to the end of IMT stage one. Mm-hmm. In the sense that when you get to a certain level of managing general medicine, it's not so much about advancing your procedural skill set or your knowledge skill set in the grand scheme of things, because that's then the realm of a specialist. When you leave internal medicine stage one, you should be able to manage essentially every single thing that comes in medically or know when to refer it. And actually, you'll tend to find you hit that point probably around midway of IMT2, where you've seen enough of medicine to know what's right and what's wrong. Actually, at that point, then further education is going to have to take the form of subspeciality simulation, which you're not going to do in reality as an internal medicine trainee, but you will do then as a subspeciality trainee in something. So I wouldn't worry too much about it. I had a similar issue. You're going to feel like any further sim you do, a generally yeah. well patient is not going to add an awful lot because you do it all the time anyway. Mm, fair enough. Good. I also think it's quite important to remember that as much as we want this to be as relevant to our jobs, part of it is just ticking the boxes. We do need to make sure our portfolios are up to scratch to ARCP because no matter how good a doctor you are and however how experienced you are, the procedures, if it's not evidenced, it didn't happen, basically. So, yeah, just making sure we've got that. Okay, so teaching attendance. So for IMT year one, they want 50 hours of attendance to include a minimum of 20 hours of recognised, organised teaching by the deanery. I'm the same for IMT 2 and 3. You said that as if it was going to be different for IMT 2 or 3. It's the same one. Yeah. So much uh, copy and pasted the, uh, the thing they across. Have. They definitely have. So, yeah, personally, I've not really struggled with this um, so far. The deanery teaching has been brilliant and there is tons of 
teaching in my hospital um, that's available to pretty much everyone that can just turn up. And from my foundation years as well, that is pretty much the same. I, I think one of the things to mention is this is not a CPD related uh, <laughs> podcast, so you cannot claim any time for this. But in reality, when we start to do our formal teaching, hopefully between Bradford and Airedale, that will be counting towards it. So formalising CPD points is a thing more for your later stages of your career. At this point, you just want to show engagement education. This is engagement and education. So for formal CBD points, you won't get it from this, but you are re- recognised in learning extra stuff by listening to podcasts of which this would technically count. So you can give yourself a couple of hours for listening to us if you want to. And I'll, I'll receive the angry emails from the deanery again <laughs> because I receive emails from the deanery sporadically about stuff. And I will tell them this is educational content and if they don't think it is, then they can, yeah, they can have their opinion. Yeah, and just to caveat that I use lots of different things for teaching. So I think we had like all the external hospital teaching, like the INT teaching that you mentioned, then anything that you attended in hospitals, so like your whatever they were running that day, I think that was, you know, you got lucky if, when you, whatever you attended. And then I, we were, one of the mandatory things is the ECHO course for the palliative care. Yep. Yeah. So I used all of that as teaching, all the simulation teaching I went to, and then also my ALS because I did like nine, whatever, ten hours of <laughs> revision or whatever it was prior to doing it. So all the extra bits of teaching, don't forget to kind of add them in as well. Exactly. Yeah. Good to know. Finally, then, okay, moving on to our practical procedures. Now, personally, um, I'd probably say that this is maybe my favourite part of IMT. I do quite like a procedure. However, it definitely is a bit daunting when you first look at the list of everything you need to try and get done throughout the year. It is also important to mention that there are some procedures that they want you to be able to do competent perform unsupervised by the time you get to IMT2, but that isn't for every procedure on that list. So I think it's important to know the difference between between the two. But for example, things like an NG tube, I mean, to be quite honest, I think most people coming into IMT are probably signed off to do that unsupervised. So, Chloe, how have you how have you found sort of working your way through that long list of procedures? Yeah, again, I think I just highlighted exactly which ones required. Oh, well, they all require skills lab or supervised practice, don't they, for IM1? Yeah. I think, yeah, so that's the only difference then. So this this year for me going into IMT2, I've just highlighted which ones require the unsupervised practice just to make sure I'm aware of which ones. Any time that I kind of heard or saw that there was a procedure going, I, you know, tried to put myself forward to do it. But I think, again, I'm quite lucky like you, Miriam, on that I quite like procedures and that's something that I volunteer to do anyway. So I think, yeah, if you're someone that doesn't particularly like it, I think just got to suck it up and just get it done, unfortunately. In terms of hospitals, I think there is actually quite a large variation between the hospitals that you work at. For example, if you're in a tertiary hospital in neurology, you're probably going to have LPs coming out your ears by the end of your four months, but you might not get as many acidic drains. So I think it's important to sort of strategize a little bit things you want to get done in certain time frames, looking at the rotations that you've had. I've personally found, compared to sort of my foundation years and coming into IM1, that actually in a general district hospital, it is 
far easier to get things signed off, um, mainly because you know all the registrars and all the various specialties. So you can make your sort of um, aspirations known to people and they will tend to find you when there's a procedure, um, when you've got some nice, friendly local regs. So, yeah, thank you, Mark, for helping for the DC cardio version. <laughs> I was going to say, it does also benefit the registrar. And uh, there's nothing better than rocking up to a cardiac arrest and pointing at the IMT and saying, right, you leave this one. I'm going to go grab my echo machine so I can do an echo. There's there's a way around of, of seeming keen and interested. And even if it's a skill you're not that comfortable in, if you explain that to the person so that they can talk you through it, you'll get these opportunities. The interesting thing when you go through the list is a lot of these are actually still skills lab or satisfactory supervised practice. The only things that you really need to be able to do independently are acidic tap, which I hope most people could do independently. It's not a particularly difficult skill. Lumbar puncture, I don't assess by success. I assess, uh, I always assess the person based on the safety of a procedure because it's not always you that struggles to get a procedure. It's a difficult procedure. Nasogastric tubes, I hope everyone can do before they came into internal medicine training. But then you've got some of these skills which you would struggle to do in most settings. So the skills lab for abdominal paracentesis, I did that supervised and I am, I would determine myself to be independent in that practice. That's going to be difficult in certain places. If you worked in, in Leeds where we had a lot of gastro patients, you do quite a lot of them if you're. Yeah, and they do like those, they do specific nurse led. Clinics. Um, yeah. clinics. So just remember that for lung and for the abdo, there's yeah. probably those clinics. And that, that's one of the things is, again, signposting as a group where these things are happening so you can get these skills done. Things like the central venous catheterization. So I did that as part of my intensive care block. But again, that's going to be a bit hit and miss depending on who you've got. I was lucky because I, I seem to be around when they needed doing things like access to circulation. It's all skills lab. And you'll get the opportunity to do these in the skills lab as part of a simulation normally. But if not, you can always book in with your clinical skills team. It's not something that gets talked about an awful lot. And you can also demonstrate interest and understanding of a procedure for e-learning for health, which I know we talked about a little bit earlier, where you can go off and do a quick e-learning course. To, if you're unable to show that you've maintained your competency, you can go off and do the e-learning for health NG pathway e-learning to show you've still got that understanding and demonstrating that competency. Generally speaking, this bit doesn't tend to trip too many people up, but it's just being on board and working in a district general at some point, I think is a really useful point, as Miriam said, working in a DGH, be it a small hospital like Airedales, like the bigger one like Bradford, where there is still something going on. You really want to work in district general because it's useful for that, but you will still find that if it is a big tertiary centre, There'll be an LP clinic normally. There'll be an IAH clinic where they have to come and have the pressures checked. You've just then got to work your way into that clinic. Yeah, and also just to mention, um, personally, I've used these as a backup, but um, our deanery also runs, as I said, skills labs really quite regularly across lots of different hospitals in the region. Anything that I will think I will struggle. I'm, I'm mainly thinking about um, central lines to get done this year. Um, just book onto a course and it and it's fine. And Bradford I used to run the LP course. I'm not sure if they still do, but Bradford used to run an LP course once every two months. I think the trainee that did it might have left now, but that was how I got LPs done, was I went to that course. And they run, if you go on to Matt's course, there's normally quite a few courses yeah, on there. Tons, yeah. yeah. So I think that is 
pretty much the entire curriculum. I think the only thing left to mention um, is in terms of the clinical SIPs um, that we haven't mentioned before, is that there are different kind of entrustability levels that you need to hit for each year. And I guess it's just important to make sure that I think it's probably more down to your clinical supervisor that needs to rate you on those things. So making sure they're aware of what you need for each year will be very important. One of the key things to mention about this is it's expected progression. So you don't don't have to necessarily go and find all these opportunities out. It's expected you would progress in these things by virtue of being in the environment. So when it comes to resuscitation and managing deteriorating patients, that's time and experience. That's why you see it progress over the course of time. It can be really difficult to prove that you are unsupervised and you're managing acutely unwell patients. ALS kind of already does that by virtue anyway. So you could make a reasonable argument. And one of the challenges that I have with the way that these things are demonstrated, I don't think I necessarily got massively better at the term at effective resuscitation and managing the deteriorating patient over the course of the three years of IMT. ALS did that, and then it was just more exposure. But I was doing that independently beforehand anyway. So some of it is natural progression, so I wouldn't get people too worried about it, something to be aware of. But at the same time, you should meet most of these points organically just by being an IMT. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and just to highlight that you have to self-rate um, them as well. So prior to your ARCP uh, meeting with your educational supervisor, you need to go through that whole big list and give yourself a rating about where you think you are. And then that gives your consultant, I think, a guide or whatever. And they yeah. either go, I agree based on your evidence or I disagree based on your evidence. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, so don't forget that you need to self-rate. I think it's and it's the whole thing about this is it's it's a challenge. There's a lot of bits and points to get here, but in reality, the curriculum does speak for itself in terms of how you can get it done. There are certain stumbling blocks, the OPCAT being one of the big ones that we've talked about, that potentially is going to unseat some trainees. Getting some of those practical procedures done and getting to clinic can be a challenge, but in a way, that's probably the challenge most people would expect to come across. Identify good consultants early. If I was to, you know, summarise this and talk about the genuine things I think help you as a trainee progress through internal medicine, identify the consultants that will support you. Identify the consultants that are happy to sign stuff off, that are keen to get you into clinic. Make good connections with those people early and you'll find most of this happens organically. Yeah, great. And then just just the finalist, finalist point is that you do get 30 days of study leave per year. Um, so use it, use it for whatever studying you want to do, whether that's going on Sims, um, but just make sure you use it in every block because you're a trainee at the end of the day. So do things that are going to contribute to your training and your learning. So And there are free things as well. Yeah, exactly. There are free courses. Do not always go chasing the financial course. I know that Miriam yeah, was yeah. planning to come with me on a, on an Echo course. Free courses that operate as well. You don't have to pocket them all yourself. It's a real sad state of affairs when we've got trainees paying out of pocket for courses that are not for their own personal benefits, for the benefit of their career. That's where the NHS sadly has got to. But in reality, there are free courses too. There's lots of good courses run by the RCP that are all free at the point of, of use. Max course for Yorkshire trainees has lots of free other courses. There's also a Max course, which is for deanery, but not medicine that has courses running on it as well, which will be useful. I may link to in the description of the video where it's not the IMTs, it's the whole of the Yorkshire Training Board 
can access oh, yeah, them. Yeah, but they're not the most useful courses, don't get me wrong. They're things like resilience training and other things that perhaps you don't really need, uh, depending on your situation. But they are still useful extra opportunities because if there's an opportunity to take some study, more from a mental health perspective and getting away from the hospitals, given how difficult they are at the moment, it's an opportunity I think everyone should take. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant advice. Definitely. Thank you for mentioning the study days, um, Chloe. I think, yeah, we have, we're obviously forced to use them for some of our mandatory training, regional training days, um, but there are a lot left over. And just to mention as well, leave before exams. Um, so you can use some of those study days, uh, five of those. Is that right? Yeah. To... You can have five days per year for exams so okay. if you're planning on sitting part one and part two in that year then just be cautious that it is five per year and not per exam i right. believe okay Brilliant. yeah okay so i think we have covered our entire curriculum i hope everybody's found that useful who were listening it's actually definitely been very useful for me to go through because it's highlighted things that i'm like oh yeah right, right, i need to finish that off and and do that so yeah it's definitely been helpful for me anyway (laughs) thank you everybody for listening thank you for listening to the airwave we hope you enjoyed our podcast and learned something new if you like what you heard please consider subscribing to our podcast on your favorite platform and look out for our content on YouTube. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for listening. Um, and, yeah, pass you back over to Mark. <laughs> I'm not sure how I'm going to I might have to add some closing bit in uh, just to say, yeah, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, just right, okay. Silence. Just saying thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you, everybody, for listening. I'll edit that thing. Thank you. Maybe that hand hand back over to me and I'm like, I don't know. I didn't know if you wanted to mention what would be coming up next in the podcast. I've got no idea what's coming up next. (laughs) Uh, Beyond beyond my discussion with Elliot, I'm due to booking at some point. I mean, the the next step for me in this whole thing, do you want to stop recording, by the way? Okay, uh, yeah.